This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Episode 41 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and while it's true that the 88th Oscars have now come and gone, this podcast will endure. We're going to spend the next six months until the next Oscar season commences talking with other interesting people from the world of film, as well as contenders for Tonys and Emmys, two other awards that we follow closely here. On this episode, we welcome two of the most important, influential, and understated members of the film community, Michael Barker and Tom Bernard, the co-founders and co-presidents of Sony Pictures Classics. For the last 37 years, these two guys have worked together in New York, first at Films Incorporated, then at United Artists Classics, then at Orion Classics, a division that they established within Orion Pictures, and for the last 25 years at Sony Pictures Classics, the independent division of Sony Pictures, which they founded with Marcy Bloom in 1992 and have run ever since. If you're a fan of art house movies, then you're a fan of Sony Pictures Classics because they've put them out on a more regular basis than any other single company over the last 25 years. Their Sony Classics filmography is formidable, from one of its earliest releases, Howard's End, to its most profitable, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, to Midnight in Paris, the most successful of their many collaborations with Woody Allen, as well as a host of other films that went on to receive Best Picture nominations like those three, including Capote, An Education, Amour, and Whiplash. They've also distributed a stunning number of films that went on to be nominated for and win the Best Documentary and Best Foreign Language Film Oscars perhaps more than any other company in history. Their documentary feature winners are Anne Frank Remembered, One Day in September, The Fog of War, Inside Job, and Searching for Sugar Man. And their foreign language film winners are Indochine, Belle Epoque, Burnt by the Sun, Character, All About My Mother, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, The Lives of Others, The Counterfeiters, The Secret in Their Eyes, In a Better World, A Separation, A More, and joining the list just this past week, Son of Saul. For those of you counting at home, they have distributed an unbelievable seven of the last ten winners in that category. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about the roots of their interest in film, how they came to know each other and work together so well, how they've survived so long in a ruthless business, and how the art house scene has changed around them over the years. As you'll hear for yourself, Barker and Bernard's knowledge for and passion about great cinema knows no bounds, which has a lot to do with why Sony Classics has always put out and continues to put out such great art house films. Before we go to this conversation, though, one quick order of important housekeeping. I want to thank Dora Takash, our terrific producer of 28 of the 41 episodes that we've done for everything that she has contributed to this podcast. It wouldn't be what it is without her. She's moving on and will be very missed. And nobody knows better how important she is to this podcast than the people who have been our guests, because I can tell you that if these podcasts were not edited, they would not sound nearly as good as they do when you hear them. So thank you, Dora, and let's go to our conversation with Michael Barker and Tom Bernard. Michael and Tom, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate you coming in. And to begin with, I wonder if we can just have each of you share where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living? Michael? I was born in Nuremberg, Germany on an American army base. My mother was a librarian and my father worked for the American government buying supplies for the PXs from all over the world. Very interesting. And Tom? I was born in Long Branch, New Jersey. Um, My father was a college football star, sold Zenith TVs, was a member of the Old Crows, which is an association of uh, guys who are involved in electronic warfare business, and uh, my mom was in the theater and then became a housewife. So growing up, did you guys go to the movies a lot? Was it a big part of your life, Michael? Well, when I was a child, it was a very big part of my life. I lived on American army base or near American army bases in Germany off and on until I was 14 
and they would show a different movie every night the local base theaters and these theaters took in one base it was an airplane hangar and another base it was a big room next to a bowling alley and i think between 1965 and 1967 i probably saw every american movie ever made <laughs> in the, in those years right. and so when i was a child i absorbed all those movies and adored them and tom did you go to a lot and if so where did you see movies yeah, I did. I mean, all little kids went to the movies back then. Yeah. You know, I, I remember on Saturday, they you, know, you were dropped off at the theater. Uh, it could have been a Disney movie. It could have been Old Yeller. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do remember a theater one time. It was one of my first movie memories where the movie wasn't very good. I think everybody in there was from like 9 to 12 and it was a riot. Kids were throwing popcorn, they were <laughs> flying things, drinks were going, the manager was trying to calm it down. So I went to the movies then. I, you know, I always, movies that scared the crap out of me were movies like The Time Machine. I mean, <laughs> kids were just running out of the aisles when we were little. Uh, and then when I, um, this was in uh, Fairfax, Virginia. My parents lived down there. And then uh, I moved to New Jersey in Asbury Park area, and Walter Reed Theaters. Uh, was in town and Walter Reed lived there so we had some of the nicest theaters I think I'd ever been in we had a theater called the Lyric the Mayfair had clouds that that came over the top Uh, the Paramount Theater uh, I I remember seeing Guns and Navarone I remember seeing Have Rocket Will Travel and meeting the Three Stooges there (laughs) Um, they had another theater called the Baronet I mean this was a small town and, and they played all all the movies from New York I remember seeing the, the Knack in 7th grade uh, I, I got my bicycle stolen at the Great Escape when I was in 5th grade so yeah I went to the movies a lot and now as you guys went off to school by that point what did you imagine you were going to do with your life afterwards were you already thinking of something in the world of film or was it more practical ideas at that point what does go off to school mean well, go like from 8th grade to high school or well, high school let's to say college let's say go to, off to college well, in high school, I went to Jesuit High School in Dallas, and it was freshman year. And it was 1966, and uh, there was rumors of this guy who was going to be a priest that had gone into the movie business and was uh, involved with Karen Black. It was a guy named Kid Carson. So the school had sort of a movie thing with that name, and they put on a student film festival. And so, you know, they had a 35-millimeter projector there, and... I remember watching the student films, and I remember the one a guy named Yarborough won. I think he was related to some governor, Ralph Yarborough, to uh, Texas. <laughs> and it was a it was a seven minute movie of a dead armadillo on the side of the road, <laughs> and and that was really the first time that I said the movie business. That sounds like a good idea, you know. This looks pretty cool, and and so that kind of got me interested in in the movies. And they showed a lot of movies there. Uh, when uh, I was, uh, I guess, a junior, uh, we had an English teacher that showed a lot of movies. And uh, remember, they showed Tom, Tom Jones at night. And it was sort of something that really got me more involved because we were going to watch it. And uh, a contingent of parents showed up, just just the dads. And there was a big standoff and a big debate whether we were going to be allowed to see this filth. And... Uh, <laughs> Mike Roach, our teacher, who, who's dead now, won. We saw the movie, and I said, this is really powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. And I ended up going to college and, and paying my way through school with a film series. Really? And when you say film series, what do you mean? Well, it was called Mud Cinema. It was at the University of Maryland. Me and my friend Pete Reniers, who went on to become a cameraman at uh, Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. uh, decided to show movies on campus. And, and back then, it was only 16-millimeter films. So it was also the time of student protest, and so we discovered this organization called the uh, Political Study Group, and it was a way for people who wanted to stage protests uh, against the government and the school or whomever could get student stuff. So like if you declared yourself a member, you then had access to rent projectors and reserve any room you wanted in school. And so there was a place called the Zoosyke Auditorium, it had 600 seats, we rented some projectors, we called places like United Artists, where Michael worked at one point in time, and, and Cinema 5, and we started renting movies and promoting them and showing them on campus. And we were in the radio and TV division, and uh, 
my wife uh, came out of there and she became an editor. She edited Amadeus. My friend Carol Cuddy is one of the top line producers in the city. Uh, my friend Pete, as I said, is a cinematographer. There's a group of us that came came to New York and that's how I got in the movie biz. Wow. And Michael, when did it first occur to you that it was something well, that was a career option? You know, um, I moved to Dallas when I was 14. Not in the good part of town where Tom lived. I was <laughs> in the wrong side of the track. And uh, I remember when I was 15, I had a book that I bought on an airport. And it was uh, Andrew Saris's book on American cinema. And I had already seen so many movies as a kid. And I started reading that book, and I didn't understand a word of it. And I had a friend who was just think, you know, I, I was getting him to watch movies with me. And he started reading the book for me and and translating the book to me about how the filmmaker was the auteur and the different characters of each of the filmmakers. And I remember we would stay home from school and watch movies on television so that we could get the hang of each of these directors. And I didn't really think of it as a career. I always thought of it as an avocation. And, and when I went to University of Texas, like Tom, went to University of Maryland. It was it was the height of the anti-Vietnam War era. And in those days, at University of Texas, there must have been a hundred different film series and programs. Every auditorium that had a projector had a program every night. And I think when I went to college, I must have seen a minimum of 10 films a week. And I had an instant education of films, you know. French department every Tuesday night would show a double feature of French classics. The Italian department would show on Wednesday night. And then you'd have the the, the RTF department showing every night a double feature of two different movies. And, and so I became very film literate, but I never thought it was going to be really a vocation. At some point I decided I was going to move to New York just to kind of leave Texas and make my way. And I came to New York and the first job in the film business I had in New York, and it was before the home entertainment business even existed. It was the late 70s. It's where I met Tom, actually. It was a company called Films Incorporated where I was renting 16 millimeter films to prisons and libraries. Arthur Bremer was one of his customers. Uh, wow. wow, and who ran Films Incorporated? A guy named Charles Benton. Or was the he, guy who he, owned it? He owned yeah. Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, uh, and that was his other out of thing. Chicago. Out of Chicago. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. so you were working at Films Incorporated doing what? Renting these 16 millimeter films. What was great, reason I wanted the job was they gave you a projector, and every weekend you could take home as many 16 millimeter films as you wanted to put under both of your arms. <laughs> and I would, I thought this was a great benefit of the job. <laughs> it was before, it was before VHS, you know. So, so I worked there for a few years. I met Tom. It was great. I'm glad you stopped there because I want to ask you guys: Do you remember the first time you became aware of each other, Tom? Well, yeah, I'd gone to work at New Line Cinema out of college they uh, offered me a job because we would never rent movies from them where were they based they were based in new york so you I, moved there too yeah 13 uh, broadway right across 14th from 14th uh, street yeah on 14th street well past 14th Union street Square. it was 13th street and it was right across where the regal theater is now <laughs> and uh it was a really crazy place. what were you doing for them well, we were that we had John Waters movies. Uh, we sold movies to colleges, and we also sold college lecturers. So I would be selling Timothy Leary, be sitting down with him to get a sales pitch of how to pitch him to a college lecture circuit, or it would be Bobby Seale, mm-hmm. or it would be uh, Dave Coppe, a gay NFL player that wanted to talk about gay rights, or Mark Lane, who had just escaped from Guyana. <laughs> and, and then we would sell... Movies like Brosson films, and, and we would sell Reefer Madness. It was a very eclectic place. Right. And we had Sonny Chiba movies. It was a little everything. Then I went to work at Films Incorporated, which uh, this guy, Seth Wellinson, who was Michael's boss, said, hey, you want to come over and start a theatrical division? And I said, yeah, I, I want to move on from New Line. And so he bought this movie, The Shout. Jeremy Thomas, a friend to this day, produced it. Jerzy Skolomowski directed it. Alan Bates and Susanna York are in it. And he bought a library of these old ABC films because repertory was big then. So you had, like, They Shoot Horses and mm-hmm. Zachariah. And two weeks into the job, he quit. So it was basically me and my secretary, Brita. Running the place. Making it all up. Making it up in a business that was... The business of fat guys with cigars that had <laughs> branches all over the country like right. Ed Wood. And we just said, 
let's, let's like make a college film series. We can do this on the phone. We can make our own ads. Uh, pretty much the way the business is today. And it was a Christmas. Uh, my, the first year I was there, we, you know, at a Christmas event, everybody uh, picks a name out of a hat to buy a gift for, and we both picked each other's names. You out and Michael. Yeah, yeah, and that's how I became by accident. Yeah. And you both picked each other. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. What were your first impressions of each other, Michael? What did you think of Tom? My first impression of Tom, I, I was very impressed by him. I remember he would just come by my desk and he'd say, what are you doing tonight? And I would say, well, they're showing a sneak of Raiders of the Lost Ark at the Criterion Theater in Times Square. I said, oh, really? And he, I said, yeah. And he said, what time? I said, 8 o'clock, but you know... I got to get there like an hour and a half before because it was like, you know, everyone wanted to see that movie, you know? <laughs> so he goes, oh, okay, what time does it start? Eight o'clock? I said, oh, okay. So I go there an hour and a half before, wait in line. Then I go in, I get in the theater, and Tom's in there saying, <laughs> oh, where you been? I, you know, I said, I've been waiting on lines. He said, oh, I got a seat for you right here, you know? <laughs> it was like he, he lived next door, and so he had a way to get into these places. So it was pretty amazing. And then uh, with The Shout, he had a premiere of The Shout, and I sh he said, you want to come to the premiere? I said, sure. And we got there, and there were the filmmakers and the producer, and everybody was there. And uh, he said, mm, I've got a problem. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, this film uh, required Dolby Stereo, which is where it had not, first... Not required. It was the first Dolby Stereo movie. Wow. And, the, and the right. Dolby part was when Alan Bates had this very... I don't know, science fiction like shout that and shook so, everything. Right. And I said, Well, what's the problem? He says, The problem is this theater does not have Dolby Stereo. <laughs> I said, So what's going to happen? He says, Well, I talked to the projectionist and I told him at this point in the movie just to turn the volume up really, really high. <laughs> and so and so the movie started and he said, Let's go, let's go and go to the party early and have a few drinks or something. I said, Aren't you worried about what's going to happen? He says, Whatever's happened is going to happen. So we go. To the it was the Empire Diner, which is where his after party was for the film. Right. And we sit there and we we have a few drinks. And he says, "Okay, when the movie's over, they're gonna be walking in that door, and it's either the end of my career or I'm in good shape." <laughs> and and so we waited and had a few drinks. And then when they all came in the door, all happy, he just said, "Saved by the bell." <laughs> so I always knew Tom was the kind of guy you want to be standing next to, like when the building's on fire right. or something. He's you know? Calm under pressure. Yeah. And Tom, what about Michael? And just to clarify, also, what? So your roles specific or your titles or whatever at that time at Film Incorporated, what were they? I guess I was in charge of, what did we call ourselves? Uh, Films Inc. Theatrical Division, okay. which was just me and one person. And then, Michael, you were in the marketing side? No, no, no. I was uh, uh, selling the 16-millimeter films. Originally, it was to libraries and prisons, but then I kind of was elevated to the head of the marketplace for colleges, which is where the big money was. Okay, so, so how big an office are we talking about? You guys were seeing each other every day? It was a big place. I mean, 16-millimeter yeah. film was the only way you could see movies outside of a movie theater. Right. And so they had, you know, thousands of prints. I think there was a big robbery there, which was yeah, a big yeah, deal they had at one thousands point of prints in the back room. You know, there were just the shipping guys. I mean, look, when I was at New Line, there was a guy named Bob Niosi who uh, they went on to, I think, make Pee-wee's Playhouse. I mean, so everybody there at different places at that time evolved. I mean, there's another guy named Dave Chaskin. I think he wrote Freddy Two when I was, he was there at New Line. <laughs> so back to your first thoughts about Michael. Uh, everybody just said, oh, yeah, Michael's this guy from Texas, and I'd gone to high school in Texas, so that was, you know, something we, we had in common. New York was still a bit strange to me at the time. And uh, Michael was up for anything. And so, you know, it was, we, we, if we were going out somewhere and we knew about uh, a movie or a party or a band, you know, Michael would be ready to go. And you guys were both single at that time, or were you married? I was single. Single. So you guys yeah. were a uh, pretty, pretty fun life. Well, no, no, no. Tom had been living with uh, Nana for many years. Yeah, and I met my wife yeah, in 72. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, and well, I, I didn't get married until 81. And wow. I was very close to, to my wife-to-be, but we had not been married. Sure. Yet. But we lived in Times Square, which was back in the day, and uh, <laughs> over in 44th Street in the Blake Hotel. And that place was wild. Bob Durst was my landlord. <laughs> the one that's in the... I went yeah, to visit Tom. Or whatever it's called. I went to yeah. visit Tom in his apartment once in Times Square, and the bag lady at the bottom of the, the her, his house, 
I was like, I feel like I know that woman. Tom goes, yeah, you know her. That woman is who Lily Tomlin based her bag lady character on. <laughs> crazy, crazy Shirley. She yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah. They, all these people would bring her into the theater, and she had a little dog, and she would yell at people. And uh, Oh, my God. And then she'd step out of character and go, hi, how you doing? Right. <laughs> when did UA Classics enter I actually enter the went to United Artists first, but not at UA Classics. Okay. I went to United Artists to sell the uh, 16 millimeter films to colleges. I was the head of that area, which was a good job, you know, and handled the entire UA library. At the same time, there was another aspect of United Artists, which was United Artists Classics, which was principally uh, repertory titles for repertory theaters, which were very popular before VHS came into being. And UA Classics started in 1980, so that sounds about... Well, actually, UA Classics started earlier with the repertory titles, but the thing is, what Tom did is he, he, he came over to start this idea of UA Classics well, releasing the, the, first There was a films. guy named Nathaniel Quitt who was a sort of a hot-shot executive mm-hmm. that uh, I guess had come from the, the TV business. And UA was on uh, 729 7th Avenue. And it was, a, you know, again, a place of, like, really old people, uh, you know, old school. This is Arthur Krim and all those guys? Well, or? they had just left, right, or about they, to. They, they was, they, well, it was, they were still there when, when he got there. But it was, like, the building. This was, like, a whole building of, of UA. It was the last place in New York. Yeah. And so, you know, the branch managers, the secretaries, they'd been there for years and years and years. It was the UA building since the 50s. Wow. And so I I had worked at uh, Films, Inc., and then I went to a couple other smaller companies, which there were a lot of garage companies at that time because there was a tax deal where if you were a wealthy guy, like some of the small companies today, you could buy a foreign film that was made for a million dollars and then write off what you didn't make back off on your you know hotel or you know skyscraper and so a lot of these guys would go to europe and they'd have these great uh, trips they'd buy these these films and you know i was marketing them and then nathaniel quit called and said hey do you want to start this new modern day kind of thing there's all these new movies that are coming out here you know louis mall uh had atlantic city you know john sales it started caucus seven and he said well, we've got this library of repertory titles but I want to start a new kind of business. I want, I want to start first this run. American independent. Just for people who don't know these terms, what do you mean first run versus repertoire? What do these terms mean? New films, theatrical films, first run films, as opposed repertory titles or titles that were titles from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, classics that you could see in movie theaters. Now, of course, we see them on DVD. Right. Well, well what happened with repertory was... There were all of, you know, the, the library of all of these companies was just, just sitting in warehouses, just, you know, hundreds of prints. Disintegrating, right? And, and theater chains like Landmark uh, and uh, I guess it was a, a Bleecker Street Theater, they, they Carnegie started Hall. Carnegie Hall, and there, there were chains of them all over the country. They started renting these movies for, for nothing. They were called revival houses. Yeah. These guys were making thousands of dollars because these were, you know, it was a renaissance of sort of cinema in the 70s. And, and so all these, you know, critics were then you know, talking about these incredible movies, how they influenced this guy or that guy. And these guys were making a fortune. Yeah. And so, you know, they, that, that business was a business for the, that was at Fox, Warner Brothers, uh, Universal. I mean, Universal, one of the things they did is they held out all the Hitchcock movies. You couldn't get them for a long time. And that uh, made them more valuable. Yeah. But anyway, so he wanted to do this new type of business, which was similar to what I'd been doing at the other places where we'd cut out the Ed Wood world of, you know, guys who would sub-distribute and help you, and they would do your ads, they would collect your money, and that was not what he wanted to do, and so... Streamline it. He streamlined it, and uh, the first movie that uh, we got was The Last Metro. So this is the first movie that you got as this new division of UA called UA Classics? Right, and Michael came over and worked From, there. Yeah. You brought Michael over? Yeah. I was tired of selling to the colleges, and yeah. Tom would always pass my desk, and then he would go, oh, well, let's just... And so no. I came over. Michael ah, okay. knew more about movies than anybody. Yeah. That I knew right. in the place or anybody I'd ever met, right. and so I remember one time. Well, we we, we had um, we had the last Metro, and Michael had bought some old Truffaut relic. 
It's a Vertigo uh, lobby car. Yeah, something like that. And, and Truffaut had flown over on the Concorde for the afternoon to look at the ads. <laughs> and so we, we brought him up. And then there was this, this woman that worked with Michael or used to work with Michael. And she handed him to him like they, she'd given him to him. <laughs> <laughs> Michael's really pissed. Least, yeah, you got that's your chance to score that some brown. Okay. <laughs> so okay, so at that time now you're at UA Classics, this new thing, and again, just for clarity, what were your job title, job description at that point? Uh, I think I was general sales manager. Okay. Of uh, distribution and marketing. Okay, Michael. I was a sales manager. Okay. You know, you know the thing that's important to note mm-hmm. is that. When Jaws came out in 1975, mm-hmm. the world changed as far as theatrical distribution. It came out wide in so many theaters everywhere in America, did a fortune, and all of a sudden the studios realized that's where the business was to make money and to get these production budgets back. Mm-hmm. And so we saw that with Star Wars, this huge success, then Close Encounters. There were so many of them. And so what happened before a movie like Jaws, and and even at that time, were the studios, they distributed and made these films that you see now that we distribute, or Fox Searchlight distributes, or Focus, or any of these companies. And, and, And the studios, it was part of their slate. And that changed overnight. And so what Tom and I... I came to the conclusion of in, with the, this boss of uh, of ours, Than uh, Quit, was that it was a different business than the mainstream studio business, and so it was a new business plan that was that had totally different variables than the mainstream business. And what we've learned is you you open these movies in a certain way, you watch your costs, and a lot of them can crossover and can go into the mainstream over time and that's kind of what we've learned over the years but it started at that moment one, one example of that which you know was the movie diner came out this is still while you're that was united artists it was, yeah. it, it was a diner and they they, they this is terrible this is they, they the said it was a terrible it. movie yeah. we, we're not gonna we're gonna throw this away we're not gonna do it and we were kind of just sitting by and we got to see it and we said, well, let us distribute the movie. We, we, we can handle this. And as soon as we wanted it, what happened is th- there were big theater chains, and the big theater chains would not let, like, the Lemley Theater or uh, the Key in Washington, D.C. or the Ocean Wells in Boston. These were all old theaters, the repertory theaters that started to play first run. So they'd have a repertory side and a first run side. And so the big theater chains, you know, like La Caja Fall, no one wanted that movie and it made the money. It made those theaters, mm-hmm. and um, so they sold it to all the big theaters, and it disappeared. So Diner was sort of this legendary movie that never really made it in the marketplace. But if you the guys, way it would have, yeah. now. yeah. So, what was the highlight? If there were any other highlights of your time at UA, and then how long after you both went there did you end up going to Orion Classics? On, from what I understand, on the guarantee that you would have the same sort of autonomy there. Highlights of UA. Uh, there are all kinds of crazy things that, that happened there. Uh, Fassbender. Yeah, we had Fassbender movies. We had this movie, Lily Marlene, and it was it was shot in English, and we dubbed it in German. In German, because we knew that they wanted to see the audience wanted to see Fassbender in German. <laughs> Nobody knew. <laughs> Nobody knew. <laughs> What brought about this decision well, to well, leave no, for we, Orion? We had, did a lot of exciting things. Martin Scorsese wanted to add 30 minutes to, to New York, New York, that he wasn't allowed to have his director's cut in 1976. So we, so we allowed that to happen. And that is the cut we released in 1982 is the cut you see now, which is Scorsese's definitive cut. And that was fantastic. We also reissued Last Tango in Paris. Last Tango in Paris came out as an X film in 1973, and very few theaters could play it. So when when we, we resubmitted it to the MPAA, it was an yeah. R, so now we could play it everywhere. And then there was a movie that dropped dead after five days called Head Over Heels, and we took it over and changed it to Chilly Scenes of Winter, and That's then we true. released it. And then... Uh, 
uh, there were all kinds of things like that. It allowed us to play with the library. And, you know, UA was having so many financial problems and, and MGM bought them and so forth. We were kind of left to our own devices and no one even paid attention or knew what we were doing. They had no idea, right? Yeah, it, it was just like, go ahead, do it. Yeah, and it was like, and even when he left, it's like no one knew well, who we were reporting to. Well, there was, I guess, in the time we were there, there were four chairmen of the boards. Yeah. And um, I guess there was a famous guy who they had a book written about that um, was one of the chairmen of the boards. I won't mention his name. And there was a movie called uh, Brimstone and Treacle. And uh, we saw it, and we didn't think it was one for us. And we got a call from him and said, you guys must buy this movie. And that's not for us. He said, no, no, you must buy this movie. And so we bought it, and then the next week he was working for the company that sold it to us. Oh, my God. And that was sort of the signal, time to go. Time to go. So now we we always... When Arthur Cram and Eric Pleskow and Bill, Bob Benjamin and Mike Manafoy, they left UA and they went to Orion. They left UA right before we came. We came right during Heaven's Gate. Yep. Wow. And and that was at post Krim and Benjamin and those guys. And Krim and Pleskow. They just left. But we wanted to be with them because they believed in the auteur theory. They, if you saw their history at United Artists, they were into filmmakers. They were the guy. They were the ones that released the first four Kubrick films. Their first movies, when Krim and Benjamin bought UA, their first, the two of their first hits in the first year was African Queen and High Noon. To, you know, the fact of the matter is, uh, under uh, Arthur Krim's supervision, both at UA and Orion. He actually won more Best Pictures than any executive in film history. And if you look over those UA years, the number of nominations, it's incredible. But they were driven by filmmakers they wanted to work with. And that's exactly who we were. So that and was who the we model wanted to be. for you guys. And, yeah, so we met Krim uh, uh, and Pleskow, and we really adored them, and they wanted our business. And they basically said, look, we see now that what you do is separate. We'll give you total autonomy. And they were in the Woody Allen business at that time. And the, at that time, the studios, especially Orion, was investing in making these kind of lower-budget, bigger films that the studios don't do anymore. But they wanted, and, and Orion Classics, they thought our films would add so much value to the overall library because the whole point is with libraries that if your library is eclectic as possible in the content the more value the overall library would be and that's where that's what how they survived ua that's what they wanted orion to be about and so we loved coming over there and working there but they were already gone by the time you started they they, they were gone yeah and when we when the brimstone and treacle incident happened we started searching for a place to go and you know they seemed a rather obvious place, and they and at UA at the time when Arthur and, and and Benjamin and Eric were running it, they had a division called Loper Films, and UA was one of the biggest companies in the world. They had branches in, the 60s. in, in every every city, um, and they made like Truffaut films. They made uh, all kinds of, of international movies for local distribution, and so. You know, that was the business we were in, and so Arthur certainly knew of us, and we went to meet him at his at his house, you know, where we saw the picture of, you know, the Kennedys and Marilyn Monroe, and I think he was on the phone with some major politician as we walked in, and and that's where we met him. Michael and him had the same clothes on. They both had cowboy boots and jeans on. It was uh, <laughs> Arthur, was he loved Texas because he was very close to Lyndon Johnson. I mean, the thing that... that is very constant in Tom's and my career, mm-hmm. is we have always worked for people that were incredibly worldly, very into world politics, into movies from around the world, very well-read people. And, you know, it's not by accident we stuck with them throughout Orion. And it's not by accident we came to Sony, where Sony Japan has this worldview that's similar. And the people through the years that we've worked for, whether it's Peter Goober or John Cowley or, or Michael Linton, they also very worldly people. So just to clarify one thing, from UA Classics you go to Orion, right. which started Orion Classics in 83. February of 83. And right. that was before or after you got there? 
What was well, did Orion Classics exist? No, no we, we found it. You found it, we Orion found Classics. It. Yeah. And Orion, though, at that when you went over there, was now run by the the guys who had left UA. United Artists. So yeah. with a reason you were interested in leaving United Artists to go to Orion. Was to be with them. Okay. Yeah, those guys went out to lunch one day and didn't come back. Right. At and UA. Went, and went to Warner Brothers. Because right. UA was owned by Transamerica, and they, they didn't see eye to eye on so many things. You know, at UA, they won... Three Oscar, Best Picture Oscars in a row. They won uh, Annie Hall, Rocky, and... Uh, Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, yeah. Cuckoo's Nest, Rocky, and Annie Hall. Yeah. And and um, it was it was a pretty great run. But then they also had a great run at not, Orion. Oh, yes. Oh, of course. Amadeus, Platoon, Dances with Wolves, Silence of the Lambs. I mean, you, you have to really credit them with taste and also sticking to their guns. Something that really, there were a couple of stories that stuck with me throughout my career. One is the Jonathan Demme story, okay? To this day, he's a very good friend of ours. But the, he, Jonathan Demme made these movies with Roger Corman in New World, and then and Arthur and Eric, they, they said, oh, this is a very talented guy. And before they left UA, they financed and they released a movie called Last Embrace. It was, you know, it got okay reaction and so forth. And then they went over to Orion, and he did movies, some movies with Paramount and someone else. And then they, they really liked him. They thought he would be a good director. So then he made Something Wild for the company. Now, Something Wild opened and didn't do that well, but it got great reviews. And I remember other people at Orion was like, why are why would Arthur and Eric want to stick with this guy and Mike Medavoy want to stick with this guy? But they did. They want, They believed in him. The next film was Married to the Mob, and it did a lot better. And then the next film was Silence of the Lambs, and it was the mother load. Yeah. And I think a lot of the, these creative decisions that executives make have to do with deciding on the talent and sticking with them. And you guys and certainly their have instincts done that. Are I mean, yeah. that's the thing that not... Many companies have these long-term relationships yeah. with the same filmmakers, and in your case, obviously, and we'll get to it, but whether it's Woody Allen or Alan Miller or Pedro Almodovar, you guys certainly have that. But So was the period at Orion Classics, first of all, how long were you there? Nine years. Yeah, nine years. Nine years. And what was that time like as you look back? What were right. the highlights? It was incredible. You know, it was incredible because it was – the 80s was a really – crazy time because there were so many companies that wanted to get into the specialty business and, and I think their motivation wasn't to be in the business we were in it was to get in on the ground floor to create a bigger business so I must, there must have been 150 companies that came and went during the 80s all hustlers trying all to, hustlers yeah. trying to go to Wall Street and say well we just got this hit and so now we want to go and take it to the next level and so we just wanted to do the business we'd always been doing. And I think we met met some of the greatest directors. We had some incredible successes. Uh, we we learned a lot. We, we innovated a lot as, as, as times went by. I mean, the, the, we had a movie called Camille Claudel. You know, Isabella Johnny's in it. There was a somebody who was close to her that she didn't go out with anymore. And, All right, we and, can say it. It's public knowledge. This well, is Warren Beatty, right? Well, you said that. I didn't. Okay, and right. then... And so he, he, the guy says, "Hey, listen, you should you should get Isabel an Oscar nomination." And we said, "Well, yeah, I, I would, so yeah, she's very good in it. She was Gerard Depardieu. It's a it's a great film, but who's going to watch it?" And he said, "Well, why don't you send out VHSs to the acting branch?" So we said, "All right, idea. let's do it." So <laughs> so we got a bunch of them made. Me and Michael and I and the staff we had stacks of the VHSs in our offices and Warren said you know you should send it to the uh, uh, so then they'll see it because it's an obscure foreign film and and we sent that VHS well, we, we stuck them on every one these like, are just labels like, like the ad oh, yeah, yeah like yeah. a label of the ad uh, on, the, on the box I still have a copy of it do you yep that's and the then, original screener yep yeah. Yeah, it's the first one and, yep. and she was nominated and we sent them, and we did them all. You know, we we mailed them, we stuffed the envelopes, we stapled them. It was. And it, <laughs> what it was I also love like is that. Uh, what great. I lo also That's love great. is is Warren was so helpful. He he was. You know, he would call and say, you know, you're gonna send those VHSs out, but I think it's important that it have real credibility with the Academy members. Have you ever thought about sending them out letterboxed? 
Letterbox. And so that's what we Remind did. Remind people with Letterboxd means. Letterboxd, you had the black bar at the top and black bar at the bottom. And a lot of people don't like that, but it is it keeps the integrity of the full picture. You know, there were so many landmark moments uh, for me at um, Orion. We met Kurosawa, and that I think Tom and I both agree, because I've heard him say this separately when I'm not even present, that Ran is probably our favorite film we've ever worked on in our lives. Wow. Because we were in from the very beginning. Yep. I flew to Japan while he was shooting it in 84. And then when it was finished... French, and French producer, the French Silverman, producer, financed who produced Diva. He's ah. a fabulous guy. He's no longer with us, uh, Sarah Silverman. But then when the film was finished and uh, the Japanese refused to submit it as their Japanese entry for the Oscar because I, they were mad at him because he didn't they show up to the movie Tokyo Al- Alzheimer's. Film, they film picked another festival. movie. I, they picked another movie. And he was not happy with them, and he decided to commit to us in the promotion of the film. So he came to see us, and and he asked us to travel with him. His doctor told him he could not drink. Put him so, in the Pierre Hotel. Yep, and he wanted us to drink for him. So <laughs> so we toured the country and drank Jack Daniels for him, and it was an amazing trip. And we met George Lucas on that trip when we went right. to San Francisco. He was just waiting and, outside. And yeah. Every, yeah, everybody wanted to meet the great Kurosawa, and then... The nominations came, and he was nominated for Best Director, and he was nominated. Uh, he had several nominations. It won Best Costumes, and and so he was so thrilled. And John I'll tell Houston you, Houston put that whole thing. Together. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll tell you a brief, a brief story. Yeah. Okay. So Stanley Donan calls me. He's producing the Oscars that year, <laughs> and he says, Michael, you know, you're doing this tour with Kurosawa. I would like him to give Best Picture. Uh, the Best Picture Award. And I said, Stanley, okay, but here's the deal. He doesn't speak a word of English. He goes, I know, but we will, we don't tell anyone that, and we will teach him how to say the names phonetically, <laughs> and we're going to have Billy Wilder and John right. Houston do it at the same right. time. John Houston had these uh, uh, oxygen tanks. It was unbelievable. The whole experience was unbelievable, but the, the funny part of it was... It, we were teaching him phonetically. You know, he said he Donan said he'd get in big trouble if he knew we had the guy get right. the best picture to speak a word of English. And what the funny thing was on the actual show, if you ever see it, he says Sidney Pollock. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It, the clips on YouTube, it's great. Well, well there's, there's another. One. You know, we had a lot of great experiences in Cannes, but I mean that that'll wait, take. When way did you too first start going there? I went in, in 1981. Okay. Uh, you know, I was at UA, and I said, well, you know, I should go over there. There's movies. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, it was the year they showed Heaven's Gate there. But, but that's not the story I want to mm-hmm. Michael can tell this story, but we had brought Kurosawa to Cannes and put him up on the Hotel du Cap, and we had set up a lunch with him and the legendary New York Times critic Vincent Candy. Yeah. And he talked about Eric von Stroheim. And Madonna was sitting at the next table. Really? Do you really want me to tell a story? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and Madonna was sitting at the next table. She had just and come to the, the can, and it was like the whole place. Truth had, or Dare, the documentary. Oh, yeah, Crazy. Yeah. And uh, Kurosawa, is, he has a translator there with him. We translated for him all the time. She was wonderful. And, uh, and someone from the Madonna table comes over. And says it's an afternoon lunch. It's an afternoon Outdoors. lunch at the Ducap, and says uh, Madonna would like to um, come over and say hello. And of course, I was very regal. He's like this. She whispers him the thing. He turns to her and says something, and she looks at me. Should I really tell the guy yeah. what he says? Yeah. And I said, Yeah, you should tell him. So she turned to him and says. Mr. Kurosawa says she makes one step towards this table. He's jumping into the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> <laughs> he just wasn't a wasn't a he, fan. Well, he just I don't know. He was. Uh, I think she her contingent her contingent made a lot of noise uh, on his floor at the hotel. Uh, okay, you know? so that's hilarious. What a odd couple. It was a cultural change in Canada right. that year. So what is it that happened? I guess it would be in 1991. 
that led you guys to give up the positions that you had developed very successfully at Orion Classics and decide to try something new? Well, what happened in Orion was that uh, they had uh, they'd had a bad run of pictures, and uh, they Arthur Krim had been trying to get financing. He had a wealthy guy named John Kluge who had uh, bailed him out, and they had two movies. They had The Adams Family and what was the other one? Two. I can't remember. Two movies that ended that they hadn't released, and that was sort of they were on the burner and. Kluge decided, for reasons I'm not going to talk about here, to sort of pull out his financing. And so they were, he said, you're, well, you're done. You've got to sell these movies off. They sold Adam's Family to Paramount. They sold the other one, which I can't remember the name, which both turned out to do over $100 million. Yeah. But put the company into bankruptcy. And so we were under contract with Mike Metavoy, Mark Platt. And there was a lot of people there. And the bankruptcy committee would not let us out of our contracts. And so, also, to be honest with you, a lot of people left. Mm-hmm. Tom and I felt very loyal to Arthur and Eric and Bill Bernstein. Uh, Mark Platt and Mike Medavoy left to form TriStar. Mike Medavoy left to form TriStar at this time. And, and so we actually waited until they told us it's okay to go, and that's when we went. Wow. And yeah. even just a, a believe, if I remember correctly, they were going through the bankruptcy as Silence of the Lambs was going through the season that it ended up yes, winning the Oscar. That's right. And were being told whether or not they could send out screeners and things with with that. But so the, no, they were going through the the horribleness of of the financial strains right before the bankruptcy during Dances with Wolves when it won Fresh Picture. And then they were going through, during the bankruptcy, what you're talking about. So you guys waited till the lights went out there, and then you said, we've got to, rather than go work for somebody else, let's start our own thing, in a sense? Or well, in our- we loved what we were doing, you know, and it uh, had proven to be very successful for us. And so we needed to find another person that understood what we did for a living, uh, because that was very key to... Our success. Mike Medavoy was at TriStar, and he told Peter Cooper that we were available. And he, he explained to Peter Cooper what we did and how we did it. And Peter Cooper was one of those very worldly, international guys, really brilliant. And so Tom and I went to, and Marcy Bloom was our other partner at who the time. Who was she? Tell the people who she Marcy was. Bloom was our publicist for five and a half to six years, and she became our partner in the late 80s at Orion, and she was our partner until uh, 97, when in 96 she had a, a medical mishap, uh-huh. a brain aneurysm, and she's doing well now. Uh-huh. But, but, but she's we, not able to work. Yes. So, But Tom and I... Um, went to meet with Peter Goober and Peter Goober said all the right things. Peter Goober's running Sony, Sony at that time. He's running Sony he's, Pictures he's, he's at the him time. And, him and Peters had just taken over, bought I think Columbia Records. This is John and, Peters. Yeah. John Peters and totally revamped the whole studio. The, the studio stu- was in bad condition when, when they came aboard. When they came aboard. Yeah. And also there were people, there were executives there that really wanted us to be there. John Dolgen was one. Mike Medavoy was another. Mark Platt was also there. And, and um, I remember the, what, how we knew it was our home. And we were there today at the Thalberg building. Is Tom and I, we, we parked at the other end of the studio from the Thalberg building. And we decided to walk. I'll never forget this. From all the way to the, through the studio. Well, Medavoy took us on a little golf cart ride. Yeah. To, to, to woo us. Just to quickly clarify for people who are listening, this is the former MGM lot, which yes. is now the yeah. Sony lot in Culver City. Right. With all this yes. history. Yes. And so you guys, before you've committed to go there, are we having a meeting. Yes. And our meeting was supposed to be with Peter Goober. But we went to see Mike Medavoy first. And his office is on the exact opposite end of the studio. And so he says, let me take you along the studio ride. And I have a sneaking suspicion Peter and Mike orchestrated this whole thing because <laughs> it, was it was really something. We And so we had never been to a studio before like that, you right. know. So we're going along, and the first person we run into is Paul Verhoeven. Now, Paul Verhoeven is finishing 
basic instinct. But we knew him from his Dutch film days, and he knew us, and he was very friendly. We were very friendly with him. And he was talking about his problem with the MPAA with Sharon Stone crossing her legs. It was unbelievable. (laughs) We hadn't seen the movie yet. It was before. And so he was telling us this stuff. And then we started walking, and then we ran into Michael Bauhaus, the cinematographer. Now, we knew Michael Bauhaus from being a cinematographer of the Fassbender movies when we were at UA, and he moved to New York at that time. And Michael Bauhaus was shooting in the studio uh, Dracula at the time. So he says, oh, you gotta come and you gotta see this. So we go and we look at the set and it's the most incredible thing, you know, in the studio. We've never seen anything Just like it. Just on the ride. Yeah, these are a couple ride. of New Yorkers. They're yeah. not used to this no. stuff. I've been there in the UA days and the studio was bad, really? bad, bad. Yeah, yeah. Broken yeah. Down, yeah. So my favorite part of it is that Mike Menavoy drops us off at the Thalberg and as we're going into the Thalberg building, Francis Coppola rides up on a golf cart and says, hey, guys, how you doing? <laughs> Dracula is what he was making there. Yeah. So you think that they arranged for these people to see you on the I way think, in. yeah. Peter oh, yeah. really wanted us to come there. And then the meeting with Peter was just fantastic because Peter understood that it had to be an autonomous business. He understood that... Uh, uh, pictures couldn't be forced on us and we couldn't force pictures on someone else he knew why New York was an important place to be for our kind of picture and the other thing is Jonathan Dolgen was also there who really believed in us and believed in our pictures and we had never met him before and so we made a deal rather quickly well, because they, they it had, felt like it was home they had a division called Triumph Films back in the 80s when I said everybody was in the business yeah. and it didn't quite work out for them I think it was, they were partners with um was was it Candle Plus? Trying no, with Gaumont. With Gaumont, yeah. And they, it, it didn't work. So they knew our business, and so when we talked to them about how we did the business, it seemed much more profitable. And at that time, how many of the other studios had a either a classics or an art house division? Well, what happened is when UA Classics started to grow, all the other companies had their own. By the end of the, and we, we went to Orion, mm-hmm. they all had their own. By the end of the 80s, they all went away. Right. And then in the 90s, they started again. Yeah, Fox had uh, one movie, or a company, what was that? They had Paul Bartel movies. They Gods had, Must Be Crazy. Gods Must Be Crazy. That was in the 80s. Yeah, and Universal had Universal Classics, and they were releasing the library, like the Hitchcocks and whatnot. But this is before we went to right. Sony. Yeah. And, you know, the Warners thing is... didn't have one. Yeah. We don't really pay attention to, like, specifics as far as these competitive companies, because these companies come and go. You're always going to have competitors. It's always... It's always going to kind of go with the flow. Sometimes it can be rougher than other times. And that's kind of the way we've learned to view it. It's also the way we've learned to buy films and invest in screenplays. We only do the go after the films we think will work or we think we can bring a a lot of our expertise to the table. And we don't really think about who else might be interested in that film because we don't want to make a wrong financial or aesthetic decision uh, because of a competition reason. We want to do what's... We want to put our best foot forward on the films we think we can make well, work. Well, a lot of the places disappeared because they just didn't make money. Yeah. And we were always oriented from our college film series days. We knew what we were spending, what we were taking in, and you know we needed to make a profit. So that was always foremost in our minds as we were doing our job. Yeah, that's the other thing. You know, it's true. Tom and I have one thing in common from our college days. I ran the University of Texas Student Union film program, and he ran that film program Mud at Cinema. University of yes. Maryland. Her yeah. name is Mud, after Dr. Mud. Yeah. Two oh, Ds. Right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, interesting. Were you guys ever tempted to do your work from LA, or do you feel that being in New York gave you greater, you know, kind of less top of mind for these guys? They leave you alone, you know? Well, no, no. It doesn't here, have anything here, to do here's, with that. Listen, New York City is the media capital of the world. That's the reason. And, and so we develop relationships over the years with, with journalists. We also were much closer to Europe when in the, in the 80s and 90s, foreign language film was the bread and butter. And so when a movie came here, they showed it in New York first. And, uh, you know, that was, that was the reason because for this business, the, the media is very important to get the word out. I mean, they, that, that gives your movie credibility. If the critics write about it, if the New York Times does a story about it, uh, if it's in the New York Film Festival, it's uh, 
Totally. I think also we could stand out more in New York. It has nothing to do with L.A. because Sony and Los Angeles has always given us the autonomy and respected us. It's it's really about what's best for the, the profile of these pictures. Is that why so many of the indie companies, whether it's it was Miramax, now the Weinstein Company, or Focus, or whatever, why are these, either the art house division or the indies themselves, so many of them are based out of New York. Do you think it's because media is so central to what they need to do? Well, they were New York guys. Yeah, that was you it. You know, I mean, James Seamus is a New York guy. Harvey yeah. Weinstein's a New York guy. Yeah. And, you know, TriStar was still in 7-Eleven Fifth Avenue when we were there. Wow. Uh, UA Orion was on 7-Eleven Fifth Avenue uh, on the sixth floor in the same building. So there was still a foothold of the studios in New York at that time. Is there an element of it also, though, you know, in terms of being left alone to your own devices by the parent company, which is a very unusual thing, right? There's nobody else that is quite in the same Well, uh, I don't know if there's no one else. I don't really think about that. But I think when you live with a company for a long time, as we do, they get used to us and we get used to them. We we work very well with the different divisions of Sony, and it's worked very well over time. But also, you're not spending recklessly you guys don't what's all sony classic movies you go into every year knowing we're not going to spend more than x amount on a movie or we're not going to release more than x number of movies no the movie tells you what you're going to spend every week you know if you are if you're playing along okay well we spent this much and we took in this much we better cut back on the spending or it looks like we're going to make more the next three weeks so the spending looks good. It's 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 math. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know that's always worked well for making money. Another thing that distinguishes you guys from a lot of other people in this business is that a lot of people in this business are sort of hustlers and brash and whatever. You guys are known as gentlemen. It's not easy to fake that over a lot of decades, so it's got to be real. And I guess the question is, how have you avoided kind of going Hollywood when you're in the midst of so many people well, that are like that? Well, I, I can tell you this: we're we're here at, at the Oscars. Uh, we uh, Michael spent the last night running around with our director from Son of Saul. We are people that want to continue to be in this business. In between, in the car, we're on the phone working on radio spots for uh, I Saw the Light, the Hank Williams movie. Uh, we're, we're talking to the producers of a movie called The Bronze about you know how much they can spend to come to New York for the premiere. Uh, you know, we, we decided we were not going to be those guys. And in Hollywood, everyone seems to want to be the next guy. And we never wanted to be the next guy. We, we wanted to just do this for a living. This is what we like to do. And we've been able to do it for so long. And I, I don't think there's anybody around that was there when we started because they all moved up. Who in the history of film do you look at and say, these guys were us before we were? I wondered if people like Don Rugoff and Dan Talbot and people like that were sort of what you might have been if you came along when they did. I know Don Rugoff well. We're not him. You're not him? Because he, <laughs> he, tell, tell why, though, because people may not know like who these guys were. Well, Don Rugoff owned theaters. Yeah. And, and he was, uh, I think, in a different economic bracket than we are. And, and I think that he was... Uh, he was, you know, part of the, the, the sort of the smaller companies that went to Europe, bought movies, and it was, you know, a vogue to, to buy the foreign language right. films. His main business was he had a theater chain that was the hottest specialized theater chain in New York City. And, you know, that was his bread and butter. The theater chain. Now, you know, Don Rugoff, I never knew him, but Don Rugoff and Dan Talbot were and are exhibitors first. I think... If you went to the artistic sides of Arthur Krim and John Calley, that is who our first mentors were, and and were very we were very much in sync with the kind of films they liked, and they they got pleasure out of making them work. We we were admirers of the auteur theory from college. Yeah. And so that's who we are. The director's the most important guy. If you want to sell us a movie, you're going to have to have a director and a script before we'll talk to you. There's another aspect to this of, of who we want it to be. And it, it's, it has to do with the financial aspect of it and the profile of it. Now, Arthur Krim used to tell us this story that I, I, I think about almost every day. Is, is when we came to Orion, he said, you know... 
guess what the most profitable picture was in the 27 years we were can, at can United you guess? Artists? So 27 years they're at United Artists, like 51 to 78. 70, eight. Eight. Yeah. Um, can you tell a year? No. That'll give it away. Um, Rocky? No. I don't know. Well, I guessed. I guessed. James Bond, you know, yeah. or or Pink Panther, right. or Rocky, or, you know. No, the most profitable picture was 12 Angry Men. It cost $2.50 to make, <laughs> and he said in 1983 when he told us this story, he said, somewhere in the world, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, that film is playing on television and generating a lot of revenue. <laughs> and what that always told Tom and myself is it's not about winning the weekend. It's about making these pictures evergreens after you've done the best you can to have the best, biggest box office you can. The idea is once you make them evergreen, they keep giving over time. And that's really our mantra. So the final thing is just if, you know, if somebody were to shadow you guys for a certain period of time, so this part A, would they find that you do more or less the same thing or that you divvy up responsibilities of different things and then part b why do you keep doing this we were together i think about a year ago when you received the french legion of honor induction you've been thanked at the oscars you've kind of achieved in a sense all there is to achieve in in this business what keeps you doing it but part a first about are you guys you know on a day-to-day basis doing the same kinds of things or do you do different things we're like one brain with two sides yeah uh I'll give you an example of the kind of small things that we do. Uh, We get in the stills from a movie, maybe 15,000 stills. I'll sit there with two pair of my reading glasses on. I will pick a number of stills. Maybe I'll get it down to 5,000. Michael then looks at them. He knocks them down to maybe 1,000. And we go back and forth until we have a still set. There may be things that Michael knows that I don't know or or vice versa about a movie and we collaborate and we know each other's strengths and weaknesses and that's what I think makes us so successful or at least makes us not make as many mistakes because we can put each other in check with what they think is a fault. We may argue about you know why but ultimately we know what's the right thing to do. One of the first things Tom said to me uh, he said you and I have got to work together on equal terms he said because you have things I cannot do and I have things you cannot do now I think that is so true but what's interesting over the years is just organically by osmosis or something as a film comes along we kind of know on this one this is my part and this is Tom's part on that one oh that's my part you know it has to do with personalities it has to do with the nature of the films and and rather than uh, uh, be specific about it we kind of let it happen organically and so for that part B though where you know Again, you look back at just some of the accomplishments. I know Crouching Tiger, I think, is by two times your biggest. uh, So I I guess let's frame it this way. What are you proudest of 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 all these years that you've worked together, and why do you keep doing it? I I love doing it. I'll do it until I can't make a living at it. It's the most fun. I, I have fun every day I go to work. And that's what it's all about. We're not achieving looking guys. We're not award looking guys. I guess if there's something to be proud of, it's look at the library we've brought out that is, you know, part of cinema history. This is our work. Our lives are what you see. This is what we did. Every day there's a piece of us in every film that we brought to the theaters in America. Michael? Yeah, I have a professional answer and a personal answer. The professional answer is I believe we make a difference on these films. And that's why we don't do other kinds of films. We really can make a difference. And that's very, very satisfying. And the activity to do that, it's never boring. It's always exciting. There's like a hundred things to do at any given moment, and that's a turn on. But on a personal level, films, have always influenced my life in a very major way. They have taught me how to think, and they have taught me 
how to form my politics and, and how to lead my life. Today, we had a lunch at Sony with the f- four of the foreign language film nominees, the directors. And the fifth one is in France because she's nominated for the Césars, so she wasn't able to come. And what I really marveled at and what made it such a powerful event is that category. When you think of the, uh, that category has serious films about serious, urgent subjects that are both domestic and international. And, and the idea that we have interaction with those artists, we, I feel like we are in the moment of what's going on in the world. And there is nothing more exciting than that. Year after year after year. How many of the greatest foreign language movies the last... 30 years, 40 years, have you guys been a part of? I mean, that's going to be a big part of the legacy, right? Well, yeah, maybe. But, you know, I went to Jesuit high school, and they they said you got to help change the world. And, you know, I think what we do helps change the world for the better. And so that we can both go to sleep at night knowing we're doing something good. Absolutely. The thing about foreign language films that Tom and I, uh, we're not like everyone else. We don't see foreign language films as different from American films. They're really not different. If, if Separation is a fantastic film, why demarcate it as a foreign film? It did as well as any American independent film could do. We really believe that. So we don't, we don't really refer to them as foreign language films. They're, they're part of our library as the greatest of the American independent films that we have. And they're of, of equal value. And the fact of the matter is, a film like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon did $128 million at, at the box office. I don't think you can refer to that in the foreign film the way everyone else refers to right. foreign films. Well, thank you very much for so many great movies and for doing this. And it's been fun. I appreciate it. And thank you, Scott. Yeah, and thanks, I mu- Scott. And I have to say, we deeply admire your predictions for the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs>